This morning's passage is from the book of Luke, it's chapter 4. We're starting at verse 14 and going on to chapter 13. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. I briefly, by way of introduction to Simon's sermonette, the theme of today is what's sometimes called the Nazareth Manifesto. So when Jesus returned to his hometown, the first thing that he decided to say in public. And so Simon's going to be looking at what he did say and what he meant by it, what was taken by it. And afterwards, there'll be a, a, a panel discussion. And one of the things that I was thinking about when I was thinking about the theme was first impressions and what sort of first impressions we like to make and try to make, whether we like to be liked or whether we like to make a lasting impression or stir things up a bit. So um, over to Simon. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. Uh, yeah, so um, just slightly precursor to the sermon. Uh, this Bible verse uh, passage contains my baptismal verse. Uh, in a slightly different version to the, I was given it from one of the other gospels, um, that as I was being baptised at the age of 14, I can remember the minister as I, we had this practice in those days where you were stood in the pool and the minister who was with you would give you a Bible verse uh, that it was supposed to be sort of significant for you in some ways. It's not a practice I've particularly done myself in ministry. Um, so as I was there in the water, the minister says, so Simon, always remember, a prophet is not without honour except in his own town. I baptise you in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And all I can remember thinking as I went down into the water was, what on earth is that about? I've never really puzzled it out. Anyway, um, 
you know, maybe it is just that your own people take you for granted sometimes. And, uh, you know, maybe he was telling me I needed to get out of Seven Oaks in order to move on. Um, he certainly never gave me a chance to preach. I, I never got to preach uh, as, a, as a teenager in my own church. I can't actually remember my first sermon. I, that, that's lost in the mists of my memory. Uh, it was probably a nervous presentation given in Sheffield somewhere as part of my discernment process for Baptist ministry in my early 20s. But I can clearly remember the first time I was asked to lead a Bible study, which was in my mid-teens. Uh, and it was for the youth group at my church. And I can, couldn't believe the youth leader was trusting me enough to allow me to do this. Uh, I can remember pretty much what I said and what I preached, uh, what I led on. Um, I do know, however, that no record of that first Bible study and no records, to the best of my knowledge, of my first sermon now remain, which is probably a good thing. Um, but I also remember that uh, no one tried to kill me afterwards, which was also good. Jesus, on the other hand, at the beginning of his public ministry, decisively put the cat amongst the proverbial pigeons with the congregation turning on him at the end of his first public sermon, uh, trying to throw him off a cliff. And you might be forgiven for asking, having just heard the passage and what Jesus said about it, what was it he said that was so controversial that the congregation wanted to kill him afterwards. I mean, what is so problematic about helping the poor, releasing the imprisoned and healing the sick? What's so problematic about declaring the dawning of a new age of God's blessing? Well, nothing, unless of course, perhaps, I don't know, you're a newly elected president of the United States of America, in which case using your inaugural address to speak of a new deal for the poor, sweeping criminal justice reform, widening access to health care and proclaiming a new era of God's blessing for your country might just about be the most controversial things you could say in 2021, at least to a certain demographic of your audience. Well, I'll be keeping a close eye on Joe Biden's inaugural address coming up this week. And it wouldn't surprise me if some of these topics are exactly what he chooses to speak on. He's already made pronouncements on a number of them as part of the lead up to the start of his presidency. In our world, as in the first century, issues of poverty and disempowerment and law and order and health and well-being and the transformation of society these are still at the top of the agenda for most politicians. And so we might ask ourselves today, how are we going to hear and respond to Jesus' inaugural sermon it, at Nazareth? As he set, set out the vision for his ministry, this kind of the next three years or the next year of Jesus' uh, ministry, as he charted his course into the future. How is this going to challenge us in our time and context? How is this relevant for 2021 Great Britain? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Well, of course, this passage 
um, that Jesus quotes here from Isaiah isn't the sermon itself. It's just the text that he preaches the sermon on. And in actual fact, Jesus does something here that preachers are usually taught not to do, but, you know, we all do it anyway. Uh, this is that he stops the reading just before it gets to the difficult bit. God forbid that we should ever do that as preachers. Uh, you may remember this passage from Isaiah. We had it as our Sunday reading a few weeks ago in the run up to Christmas. So let's listen to the passage as it is originally found in uh, the book of Isaiah. So this is Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 to 2. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. Well, the people listening to Jesus in the synagogue would have known this text well. And they would have known that that last line and the day of vengeance of our God, they would have known that according to Isaiah, the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favour was accompanied by a proclamation of God's vengeance on God's enemies. They would have been used to hearing this passage as an affirmation of their special privileged status as God's people alongside God's repudiation and condemnation of those who were their traditional enemies. In short, they would have been used to hearing this passage as an us and them proof text, where, from their point of view, we are God's chosen and they are God's rejected. We are those who receive the blessings of the year of the Lord's favour, they are those who are on the receiving end of God's divine vengeance. And yet Jesus stops before the end of the sentence, deliberately and strategically leaving out the proclamation of judgment, undermining the usual way in which this text was heard. And without knowing what Joe Biden will say in his inauguration speech this week, I'm fairly sure of what he won't be saying, the bits he will miss out. He won't be saying build the wall. He won't be saying lock her up. I actually pray that he will refrain from any language of us and them, of in and out, because such language always leads to the fracturing of society and stokes the flames of violence. But those who are addicted to being right at the expense of other people's wrongness, those whose identity is built on being in at the expense of other people being out, don't take well, either in the first or 21st centuries, to being denied their moment of self-righteous judgment. Because you see, the logic runs that if they aren't out, how can we know that we are truly in? Well, Jesus subverts this logic. He fails to proclaim the word of judgment that everybody was waiting for. And that's just what he doesn't say. He's already 
upset people by the time he has got to the end of the Bible reading because he's missed out the most important bit from their point of view. What comes next rams the point home in no uncertain terms. He provokes a response. By omitting the judgment on God's enemies, Jesus has implied that God's blessings, the forgiveness, the liberation and the healing of God's favour, he has implied that these are no longer restricted to one chosen nation. And those who were used to hearing this as being about them and them alone are suddenly challenged to hear it as being about blessings for others too. And as with anyone whose privilege is challenged, the raising up of others can feel like a threat. The removal of oppression from some can feel to others like a removal of their privilege. The proverb, Dr. Cure Yourself, that Jesus quotes, is a challenge to Jesus to stop focusing on proclaiming healing for others and to return instead to bringing God's blessings to himself and those like him. They challenge him to stop all this focusing on them over there and instead to turn his attention to his hometown, to his family, his friends, his community, his tribe. But Jesus' repudiation of the call to tribalism and his insistent refocusing of his message on those who are not yet privileged with God's blessing is deeply problematic for those in the congregation, in the synagogue, in Nazareth. They'd expected their hometown boy to preach a storming message for them of comfort and optimism. A kind of make Nazareth great again message. That's what they'd come for. But what they got was a challenge to look beyond themselves and to see that God's intent and interest is far wider than their narrow circle. They got a message that God's blessings were now not just for them, but for those very people who they thought ought to be on the receiving end of God's judgment. To make the point still further, Jesus then recalls two Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha, both of whom took God's blessing to the needy of other countries, despite the fact that there were still those in need of care back home in Israel. If you remember, last autumn, the British Chancellor announced that the international aid budget would be reduced from 0.7% of gross national income to 0.5%, with effect from 2021. Two percentage points? What's that worth? Well, that released about four billion pounds worth of money from being spent on overseas aid so that it could now be spent in the UK instead on helping us recover from the pandemic. I wonder what Jesus would say. Well, in Nazareth, he said, the truth is there were, met, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel 
at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Well, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, that charity begins at home. Doctor, heal yourself and those like you. But Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom is very clear. Charity does not begin at home. And the best doctors do not, in fact, focus first on their own well-being, as those who have caught COVID and died treating others over the last year have demonstrated. Jesus' call is to a new way of living that challenges to the core those ideologies of protectionism, nationalism and xenophobia that so readily write the script for nations in first century or 21st century humanity. And if we are to proclaim this message of Jesus to our world, then we can expect a response. The congregation tried to kill Jesus for his proclamation of God's blessing that cuts across barriers and transcended their precious narratives of us and them. Jesus inspired hope, but what followed was conflict. Jesus signalled a new direction, offering a vision of a better, more equal future for humanity. But the forces of tribalism wouldn't give up without a fight. And in the face of such conflict, whether on the other side of the Atlantic or here on our own doorstep, or dare I say it, within our own church communities, and I only have to think of the way in which churches are tearing themselves apart over issues of inclusion, issues of racism and LGBT inclusion. The call for us to rediscover, re hear and start living into being Jesus' vision from Nazareth becomes all the more important. So let us not be timid in the Christ-inspired challenge that we bring in his name to a world still addicted to division and partition. We will challenge the narratives of exclusion. We will call society to attend to the other to the poor, to the disabled, to those we shut off from ourselves. And through our speaking and our acting and our partnerships with other organisations such as Citizens UK, we will share in the proclamation of the Lord's favour. Amen. Thank you, Simon. We're now just going to have a couple of minutes of silence, um, followed by a panel discussion. If there's anything you'd like to, to, to comment on or ask about, uh, please put it into the chat. Thank you. Okay, we have our, our, our panel here. We have Philip, uh, Tommaso and Helen. Thank you all. So I'd just like to um, open up and ask uh, if any of you have any first impressions or, or thoughts you'd like to share. Go first. Um, so, I just found it interesting that Simon had mentioned the, the American situation, which we can't really talk about in massive detail because we'd go on for forever, probably. Um, but I actually heard a podcast really recently that Joe Biden was a guest on. So it wasn't his own one. It was a lady um, called Brené Brown, who's a Christian American 
lady she has a podcast it's very good um and she has guests on every week and they talk about all kinds of social issues I guess and the one that Joe Biden was on they were talking about power and I just thought that linked really well because he was saying that there are two types of power there's power over people and there's power with people um and he said I'm a power with kind of person and that might be slightly different from previous presidents who feel like power over is is more important. And I, I just kind of felt that that did link quite nicely in with this passage, actually, because that's that's what we're talking about. We're, we're saying that the good news is for everybody and we shouldn't no one gets to should get to decide who it's for, because that's not our job, really. Yeah. So I just wanted to recommend that to everybody. I'll put it in the in the chat where it is later on. Thank you. I've a number of people <laughs> agree here and elsewhere that Bernie Brown is, is excellent. So thank you. Uh, Tommaso, Philip, what were your first thoughts? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'd like to follow up on, on this American dimension. Um, Simon indeed mentioned the upcoming inauguration in Washington, D.C. And these reminded me that tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day in, in the United States. And Dr. King gave a sermon on Luke 4, 18, 19 in 1966, entitled Guidelines for a Constructive Church. And I read it again in preparation for the service. Uh, and by the way, if you are interested, you can find the, um, the original recording available online. And I was struck by, by some passages, and I don't want to talk for too long, so I will just pick uh, a couple of themes that truly resonated with me. One is the emphasis on freedom. And Dr. King said in, in that sermon, and I quote, the role of the church is to free people, end of quote. But when he delved into that issue, he didn't refer to the victims of segregation and discrimination alone as those in need of deliverance. He included also, interestingly enough, those who were, and I quote again, caught up in the slavery of fear and prejudice, end of quote. He talked about people also were arguably uncomfortable with racial injustice in their heart, but at the same time were fearful of social, political, and economic consequences had they taken a public stance on this matter, including some black preachers who were reluctant to speak up in favor of the civil rights movement. They needed freedom too freedom for, from their fears, from their own mental patterns, for sure, but also from their social environment. And the church, Dr. King suggested, had to find ways to engage with them in pursuing its mission. And the second theme is the primacy of conscience in embracing God's message. Again, Martin Luther King made very clear that he was not fighting for racial equality, because that was a mainstream concern at the time or because his congregation wanted him to behave that way. Rather, he, he saw social and political activism as a form of service, which would inevitably result in some backlash against him and his followers. Um, 
Dr. King said, and I quote again, the God that I serve and the God that called me to preach told me that every now and then I will have to agonize and suffer for the freedom of his children. I even may have to die for it. But if that's necessary, I would rather follow the guidelines of God than follow the guidelines of man, end of quote. And as we all know, this statement turned out to be prophetic less than two years later. But, but if I may end on a more positive note, it's worth recalling that in the next few days, the current pastor of Martin Luther King's church in Atlanta will officially become a sitting US senator from the state of Georgia. And I think that highly symbolic moment alone will prove that despite the difficulties and the challenges ahead, breaking barriers and removing obstacles to freedom is not beyond us. Thanks. Thank you, Tommaso. And thank you for, for doing that research and sharing that with us. That's really remarkable. Would you be able to put a, a link in the chat to, to that sermon in case anyone wants to, to hear it all themselves? Thank you. Philip. Oh, yes, that was brilliant, Tommaso. A mine of information, very helpful information there indeed. Thank you. Um, I'm just wondering how, in terms of the link, we can foster a healthy nationalism without this strangulating tribalism which seems to infect it all the time. Um, I mean, like everybody else, I've been appalled by this ugly, grotesque pageant of horned Vikings that we've seen, you know, marauding the capital in the United States over the last week or so. Um, uh, and lots of them call themselves Christian patriots. And I wonder really how deep can we go in looking at Christian patriotism? I mean, does it have any traction at all? Um, I mean, patriotism, we always used to say, is the last refuge of the scoundrel. And um, <clears throat> I never found that particular aphorism particularly clarifying, actually. But I think there's something there to think about. But it, it, it isn't always the case. I mean, uh, for example, I know that in Wales, in the 60s with the, with the Welsh nationalism, I mean, the leaders of the movement at that time, Gwynvor Evans, he was a great Christian pacifist, a lay preacher. The Reverend Lewis Valentine, I'm sure Simon will know these names very well. Um, a Baptist minister in North Wales, uh, poet Saunders Lewis. Many of these people were great pacifists, um, really, I mean, all left of centre. And it seems that a lot of these um, in Britain, I think th there is a left of centre uh, movement, uh, I mean, in Wales, certainly in Scotland. I mean, let's think in Scotland. I mean, every single Labour MP was has been swallowed up by the SNP, hasn't it? Um, almost totally. Um, and I wonder where we can go from there. Presumably, we've got to try and preserve, I mean, we've talked about protectionism, some of these things. I was thinking of the words Howard Williams, the previous minister of Bloomsbury, um, he had a lot of battles with the LBA in the 60s and 70s. And he used to refer to the problems he had with 
what he referred to as evangelical Rottweilers guarding the properties of the faith. I think it's a brilliant phrase, actually. And um, I, I'm wondering, you know, we need perhaps to be more canine in some ways. And we think of verses like the lion and the lamb. Perhaps there are times we need to be more lamb-like. But uh, we probably need protectionism is usually given a very negative frame. But presumably there are certain verities that we do need to hold on to. And what are these new challenges that grip us now, um, which are quite different probably from the 60s and 70s, um, and that we need to be very mindful of these, these things today? I think I'll probably stop there, actually. <laughs> um, so one, one thought I had whilst all three of you were speaking is, what sort of balance um, we as individuals or as a church should place between helping those who are in need, so the widows of, of Jesus' uh, story, um, versus standing up to and trying to oppose and correct and educate those who don't help them or actively persecute them? Should we, as a church, get on the background doing lots of good things and or should we actually stand up and be controversial and, you know, be disliked like Jesus was? I mean, we're already probably quite controversial already. <laughs> but then Bloomsbury has a history of doing both things, right? So they, there must be a, a, an ongoing balance, I guess, because we do have a tradition of, of melding those things together. But it's just so interesting you said that because I write notes as we're going along, so it's all just mess. Um, and one of the things I wrote down was when we said to challenge that narrative of exclusion, that it's almost that the narrative of exclusion, we have to be careful that that's not the main message. And we just go, well, we don't agree with that as individuals or as a, as a church, but we don't... Um, we just go, oh, well, we know that people don't really think that because that's, you know, extremism or that's just, just mean and we'll just get on with our own job. And I think sometimes, especially with narrative, you have, to, you have to bring that to the foreground. So sometimes maybe we do need to be bolder in, in being controversial. Although actually it's not that... I think when you talk to most people, being inclusive is not actually that controversial at all. And, you know, the majority of people do want to make sure that people are not sick or oppressed or excluded or whatever. And, and you've seen that recently with, with COVID things where the government won't necessarily help with laptops for children, something that I know a lot about at the moment, or free school meals, or even bigger, bigger things like paying people who can't go to work or people who are being forced to go to work, even though they shouldn't, or they're working in bad conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And you're seeing a lot of community groups saying, well, we're just going to do this ourselves then because you're clearly not doing it. So it's community groups that are saying, well, I'll get my laptops and I'll take it to the school or we'll set up our food kitchen or we'll do these things. And they still seem quite small things. Like you don't always, at the moment, they're quite popular, so they get on the media, but those things have probably been happening all the way through and you don't necessarily see that narrative um so yeah I do feel a little bit like maybe we need to add our call to other groups as well who are saying actually this 
this the good news is the thing that's the important thing and we want to challenge that narrative that seems sometimes mainstream how we do that <laughs> i guess it's a subject for discussion not just this morning Thank you. Um, Philip or Tomas, is there anything you want to <clears throat> say on that or indeed anything else from the discussion? With a big tent at Bloomsbury and we must keep the tent as big as we can and mm. include the sheep and the goats. Yes, I, I entirely agree. Um, do not write anybody off. I mean, I think that's also one of the secrets perhaps. Um, when we, we, we take a stand, when we fight for something, I don't think we, we should kind of believe that even those who are against that position or do not believe that cause is worth pursuing cannot be, uh, you know, won over through persuasion, example, engagement, dialogue, and so on and so forth. Um, I think that's also one of the, one of the key lessons. Um, there is space for everybody and everyone can change. Thank you. I'm just having a quick scan through the chat. Um, <clears throat> so people have been discussing uh, a few of the points uh, raised in the sermon. Um, yes, and discussing uh, the fact they need to do both, we need to reach out and, and love those who are in need and also challenge those who are not so loving. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Well, thank you all very much. Um, I found it very interesting. Um, is there anything else any of you would like to, to say or anyone else in the, in the chat want to put anything up? No, okay. Well, thank you all. I'd now like to invite Tommaso uh, to come back and, and lead our prayers of intercession. Thank you. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you this morning for your presence in our lives and for the presence of those whose kindness, patience, and generosity open up paths to you. Those who welcomed us when we were strangers, supported us when we were weak, and gave us glimpses of your boundless love when we were hesitant or faltering. As imperfect as we are in bringing our aspirations, hopes and concerns before you, we express gratitude for the blessings we have received and our commitment to share in these with an ever increasing, more inclusive community. Loving God, we pray for those whose daily lives are marked by injustice. Those who suffer because of our inability to live up to your message of hope and redemption by choosing forgiveness over revenge, humanity over fear, trust over cynicism, and reform our institutions accordingly. Loving God, we pray for those who are rejected or expelled from our society because of the sweeping, unfair 
and biased judgments we pass over them. The very many who are warded off because of their nationality, religion, gender, views, or the color of their skin, and face all sorts of boundaries and borders they are regularly prevented from crossing. Loving God, we pray for those who are exploited and underemployed, those who are not properly and decently rewarded for their work, those who cope with unbearable and undue hardship, even when actively contributing to some of the wealthiest and most productive economies history has ever seen, being regularly frustrated in their attempts to escape poverty and deprivation. Loving God, we pray for those who are threatened by forces that are beyond their control, either at individual or collective level, from depression, self-harm, and addiction to environmental damage, war, and diseases. Loving God, we finally pray for ourselves. May we find the strength, balance, and fortitude to make further steps on the road leading us to bridge the gulf between your promise and the flawed world we inhabit. May we recognize the beauty that lies in letting justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Amen. And now uh, at the conclusion of our service, I just wanted to paraphrase the main reading from today. The spirit of the Lord is upon us because he has appointed and anointed us. He has sent us to announce good news to the poor, to proclaim re release for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to let the broken victims go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Amen. <laughs>